Genesis 25 and verse 22 it says, and the children, <coughs> sorry, and the children struggled within her, and she said, "If it be so, why am I thus?" And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the other, the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Let's give <clears throat> our time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for uh, the opportunity to gather around your word. Lord, we pray that this evening you would uh, just instruct us and teach us, help us to understand uh, the passage before us. May you uh, bless us and refresh us through it. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now to speak. May it be your words this evening, may it be your thoughts, and may you just, uh, Lord, just bless this time now as we gather around your word, and may you receive all the glory, uh, the honor, and the praise, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, of course, this morning we looked at the, the first part of this section here at the end of chapter 25, and we considered Isaac and Rebekah, we looked in particular at their faith, their faith as they turned to the Lord in their hour of need. Isaac, of course, sought the Lord because his wife was barren. You know, he, he was waiting for the promised seed to come, for you know, the children to come through him to make a great nation, to fulfill all those promises that God had said would come through him. And so he prayed in faith, prayed asking God to fulfill that promise. And we saw that God heard his prayer. And God answered his prayer, but he had to wait 20 years. He had to wait until God's perfect timing. He had to realize, like his father before him, that God is sovereign, and God is in control, and God's timing is best. And of course, we saw Rebecca, how she sought the Lord when her pregnancy became difficult with the, the struggle within her womb that she couldn't understand, and so she took this concern, this care to the Lord in prayer. And God revealed to her this wonderful prophecy that she's having twins, and that these two would be the father of two nations who would struggle against each other. And God, of course, revealed that the youngest son was his choice. The youngest son would prevail. The youngest son was the one who would receive the covenant promises that would belong to him. And now having looked at these godly parents, Isaac and Rebekah, and seen their faith as they prayed to the Lord concerning these issues before them, we come this evening now to their children. And we see the vast difference between Jacob and Esau revealed to us in the passage before us this evening. First of all, here we see their names. We see their names. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. In verse 24, we see that God's word to Rebekah is immediately confirmed as she gives birth to twins, just as God had said. Okay, verse 24, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in the womb. And so that was part of the 
the, the revelation from God. That was part of what God had told her, that she was having twins. And God's word is confirmed now as she gives birth to twins. And even at their birth, these two are very different from one another. We learn that the firstborn in verse 25 there is red and hairy all over. Okay, it says, And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. He's red and hairy all over, and it says at the end of the verse, because of his appearance, he's given this name Esau. <clears throat> now, the name Esau is generally taken to mean hairy. Okay, that's what most take it to mean, and, and we can see uh, the sense of that. We can see why that would make sense. But others disagree with this and suggest that the name actually comes from a word that means to make. To make, and so it means the made up or the mature one. And speaking from the fact that, sorry, <clears throat> speaking about the fact that he seemed to be prematurely developed, okay? He was hairy all over, like a man rather than a baby. Uh, commentator Clark writes this it is difficult to assign the proper meaning of the original Esau. If we derive it from Asa, it must, sig- it must signify made, performed, and according to some, perfected. Isa in Arabic signifies to make firm or hard and also to come to man's estate to grow old. And probably he had this name from his appearing to be more per- perfect, robust, etc. than his brother. And so there's these two ideas. Some say it means hairy, but then when you go to the Hebrew and you, you look at the word there and what it's from, it actually seems to make more sense as talking about this mature one. That's what the word is talking about. It's difficult to say for certain what the name means, uh, whether it speaks about being hairy all over or being a mature, uh, seemingly more mature, more perfect. What is clear is that he's given this name here because he seems to be a rugged, strong child. Okay? That really is the essence here. He seems to be rugged and strong, and that's why they give him this name Esau. And this is, of course, in contrast to his brother, who we read in verse 26, comes out holding Esau's heel. Let's just read verse 26. It says, And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three school years old when she bare them. And so this, the second child, of course, comes out holding Esau's heel, and they call him Jacob. And the name Jacob is said to mean heel catcher. And so it's derived directly from what they observed, okay, from what they saw him holding on to Esau's heel, and that's why they gave him this name, heel catcher. However, the name also comes from a word which means to defraud, to deceive, or to supplant. It means to overthrow a person by tripping up the heels. And so this unusual name spoke of his actions grasping his brother's heel, but it would also turn out to be a prophecy of how he would trip up his brother as well. And Weasby writes this, Before birth, Jacob and Esau had contended. And at birth, Jacob grasped his brother's heel. The latter action was interpreted to mean that Jacob would trip up his brother and take advantage of him. And the prediction proved true. Likewise, Morris, he writes this, Though to the natural eye, Esau appeared the stronger and more attractive, Jacob was tenaciously following on his heels and would one day overtake and replace him not only in the eyes of God, but even in the, in the world of men. 
And so we see here with their names, already there's a, there's a stark dis- difference between the two. We have Esau, this one who is rugged, he's hairy all over, he's given this name Mature. And then you have Jacob on the other side, the heel catcher. And this implication that he's going to overtake, he's going to replace his brother. And so we see they're different already just from their names. But then we see secondly here their interests. Their interests, look in verse 27. It says, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. Now the difference between these two is now secondly here clearly seen in their interests, their, the activities that, that they like to be involved in. And verse 27 gives us a clear description of their interests. And it's in these interests here that we begin to see now clearly their characters revealed. You know, we begin to see here what God had seen in the womb. This morning we talked about how God made his choice because God is omniscient and he knew what these two boys would grow up to be, the men that they would be. And here in their interest, we begin to see what God already knew. We begin to see revealed for us their character by their interest, by their activities. And Esau here, here, first of all, is said to be a cunning hunter, a man of the field. You know, at his birth, he was viewed as rugged, as being a strong child, and his interest as he grew up reflected that. You know, he almost he lived up to his name in a lot of ways. His interest reflected this, this rugged, strong person. He was a rugged outdoorsman. He loved to spend time in the wild hunting for prey. A cunning hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob, on the other hand here, is said to be a plain man dwelling in tents. You know, as we read that, we immediately here get the impression of someone who is, you know, content to stay at home. You know, he's content to be a homeboy. You know, indeed, the impression given by the statement there, a plain man is someone who is weak, someone who is uh, weak compared to his brother, in contrast to his brother who is a manly man. You know, at first reading then, when you read verse 27, the attributes of Esau seem to be the, the more commendable ones, don't they? They seem to be the more respected ones. And then we look at Jacob and they're more uh, distasteful. But you see, when we really stop and we actually consider their interests here, the opposite is actually true. The opposite to our initial opinion, our initial understanding is actually true. For instance, let's consider first of all Esau here. Now, cunning hunter, a man of the field. What exactly is good or indeed a benefit of being a cunning hunter in Esau's situation? What exactly is the benefit of it? What is the profit of this? You see, think about it for a second, where he lives and where he's grown up. Esau's father, Isaac, has inherited all of the wealth of his father, Abraham. Now, we saw that in verse 5 of this chapter, chapter 25, verse 5. It says, And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Isaac inherits everything. It's all in his hand. It all belongs to him. And we know that Abraham was extremely rich in flocks and herds. Genesis 13 verse 2 says, And Abraham was very rich in cattle. And so he has plenty of substance. There's plenty of food in that sense. So the point is that when you are this rich in cattle, when you are this rich in a meat source and food source, 
What's the benefit of being a hunter? What's the point of this profession? What's the need of it? The commentator Morris expressed this point really well. He said Esau's family was not in the least endangered by wild beasts, nor did they with their extensive flocks and herds have any need to slaughter deer and other wild animals for food. That there was no overpopulation of animals that needed thinning out for the sake of a balanced ecology is obvious from the fact that Esau had to become a cunning hunter to find them. You see, the point is that as you look at it, less and less is this, at, this an attribute that's really, oh, wow, how great it is. More and more we realize it's completely unnecessary. He lives in a place where they have an abundance of food. They own all these cattle, all these herds. There's no threat around them that he needs to hunt after animals. And indeed, there's no animals stealing their, their, their grazing area. There's no overpopulation. He's got to be a cunning hunter. He's got to go find them. You see, the point is, far from this being a necessary and vital profession, this was something that was simply not needed. And really what this is telling us here, as we read that Esau is a cunning hunter, a man of the field, what it tells us is that Esau liked to waste his time hunting for sport. That's what he is. He's a, he's a sportsman. He likes to hunt for sports. He likes to waste his time in the field. He preferred wasting his time playing in the field rather than staying at home, working hard for his family and indeed working hard for the Lord. And in the New Testament, Hebrews adds to this, describing Esau as being a fornicator and a profane man. Let's just turn over there, Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verse 16, it says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. He's called a fornicator or, and a profane man. The point is, Esau loved the sensual pleasures of life. He was purely secular. He loved the secular things. He was concerned only with himself, concerned only with pleasure, enjoyments. And he had no time for the Lord. And, and we immediately here begin to see why God rejected him, don't we? We begin to see why God rejected him and indeed, in, and indeed instead chose his brother, Jacob. You see, Jacob, on the other hand here, is said to be a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, the phrase dwelling in tents here tells us that just like his father and just like his grandfather Abraham who had spent their lives as pilgrims, sojourning in a foreign land, dwelling in tents. It tells us that Isaac was content to do the same. He's put it in the same phrase that alongside them for this reason in Hebrews chapter 11. Just turn to Hebrews 11. <clears throat> In Hebrews 11 and verse 9, it says, By faith you sojourn in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. He's put alongside his grandfather and his father concerning this, this idea of dwelling in tents, being a pilgrim, sojourning. It speaks of his contentment to live this life, his contentment 
to dwell where God had him. This phrase, dwelling in tents, also speaks of his willingness to occupy his time close to home, caring for the flocks, caring for the herds of his father. You see, the point is that while his brother was off playing in the field, Jacob was busy at home. That's the difference here. Esau's off in the field playing games, chasing, you know, hunting after animals for sport. Jacob's at home, dwelling in tents. He's at home looking after the, the flocks, the herds. He's at home laboring for the family and for the Lord. And the other phrase here, as we go back there to that verse, Genesis 25, verse 27. <clears throat> it says, As the boys grew, Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man. Dwelling in tents. That phrase, a plain man, is really interesting. And I didn't know any of this this week until I studied it out. A plain man. You see, we read that in English and immediately what do we think of? We think of someone who's quiet, someone who's weak, as I mentioned earlier. That's, that's the impression we get. But this seems to be a really poor translation. You see, this Hebrew word here actually means perfect. It means complete. It means Mature. It speaks of morally, someone who's morally upright, a morally pious person. The exact same word is used to describe Job in Job chapter 1. Let's just turn over there. Job chapter 1. Job 1 verse 8. Says, and the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? That word perfect there is the same Hebrew word that's translated plain in reference to Jacob. It's the same word. I don't know about you, but that immediately changed my understanding of that verse, my understanding of what this is saying about Jacob. You see, Jacob here is said to be a perfect man dwelling in tents, a mature man dwelling in tents. That changes that whole idea, doesn't it? Gives a totally different understanding immediately to what it's talking about. Jacob is said to be a pious, perfect, mature, morally upright man. That's the implications of this word. And it tells us that Jacob, unlike his brother, Jacob is interested in the things of the Lord. The spiritual is a concern to him, and his life reflected that concern. Morris writes this, Jacob had learned of God's promises from his mother and father, and no doubt also knew of God's word that he, not Esau, was to be the inheritor of those promises. He took them with all seriousness and desired to see God's will accomplished. He was a mature person. Not a carnal, immature playboy like his brother. That's the implication of this verse. That's the, that's the contrast here. You have one who's an immature playboy and you have the other who's a mature man seeking the will of the Lord. You see, already just in their interests alone, we can see why God chose Jacob come and he refused Esau. You see, in Jacob, we see a reflection of his grandfather Abraham, don't we? And we see a reflection of his father Isaac before him. Men who were mature, pious, godly men who dwelt in tents. 
And the same phrase is said about Jacob. A mature, pious man, content to dwell in tents, following the Lord. He sought the spiritual. And that brings us now to our third point here, their conduct. We've looked at their names and we've seen their interests. And now we see the difference in their conduct as well. Their conduct. Look in verse 28 with me. It says, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sod pottage. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Excuse me. Now, after reading verse 27 and understanding what verse 27 is saying, you know, we would have thought that Isaac would have favored Jacob. Now, considering that Jacob is the one who's spiritually minded, the one who's most like him and like Abraham, surely he would favor him. But instead, what we find is that he favors Esau. Verse 28 says, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It says that the reason that he favored Esau is because he did eat of his venison. And Morris, again, he notes this. He says, eating venison might have seemed exciting in some way to Isaac, possibly because he was proud of the athletic prowess of his son. But it could hardly have been solely because of its delectable taste. Rebecca, in fact, could prepare goat meat in such a way that he couldn't tell it from venison. And we saw that, and that's later on, of course, in chapter 27. And so it could hardly be because he loved venison so much. You know, he loved the taste of it. I mean, Rebecca could prepare goat meat and he couldn't tell the difference. And so what it tells us is that really the reason he loved it is because of, it was exciting to him. He, he was excited about his, his son and his prowess and how he was going out in the field and doing these things. But in any case, Isaac, he begins to be partial towards Esau. And it's this favoritism that leads to or brings about the events at the end of this chapter. See, it's evident from what transpires here that Isaac has not yet given the birthright. He's not yet given the the privileges that go along with it unto Jacob, as God has clearly indicated he should. As we saw this morning, God made it clear to Rebekah that the younger would prevail. The older would serve the younger. God made it clear that that was his choice and the younger should get the birthrights. You know, Rebecca, she would have told Isaac that. She would have gone home and told Isaac this prophecy and say so he knew God's choice. And he should have already made it clear to his sons that Jacob was going to get the birthright. He should have already done this. But it's clear that he hasn't. He hasn't done this. And indeed, the more that he favors Esau the more it looks like he's never going to do it, doesn't it? The more it looks like this day is never going to come, he's putting it off. And so because of this, the story now unfolds before us. 
In verse 29, we read of Esau returning weary from one of his hunting excursions. It says in verse 29, And Jacob sought pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. He comes home, he's been out playing in the field on his, one of his hunting excursions, and he returns home to find that Jacob has prepared himself an evening meal. Jacob's prepared some stew, his pottage. And Esau sees this and he smells this stew and he begins to make a great fuss about how tired he is, how worn out he is, and he begs Jacob to give him some of the red pottage. Look in verse 30. It says, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. He makes a great fuss, doesn't he? About the fact that he's weary, he's tired, give me some of this food. Now, it wouldn't have taken Esau any time at all to fix himself some food. It wouldn't have taken him time at all, it wouldn't have taken him long. What we see here is his carnality, his immaturity. We see this evident once again because he wants here immediate gratification of his appetite. And indeed, as we see, he wants it at any cost. He just wants his appetite to be gratified. On this interaction, Barnes writes this, the two brothers were not congenial. They they would therefore act each independently of the other and provide each for himself. Esau was no doubt occasionally rude and hasty, hence a selfish habit habit would grow up and gather strength. He was probably accustomed to supply himself with such fare as suited his palates and might have done so on this occasion without any delay. But the free flavor and high color of the mess, which Jacob was preparing for himself, takes his fancy. And nothing will do but the red, red. Jacob obviously regarded this as a rude and selfish intrusion on his privacy and property, in keeping with similar encounters that may have taken place between the brothers. So the point is that Jacob wasn't being unkind here. Jacob had made his evening meal. Esau's being selfish. He's being rude. And this is probably not the first time that he does this. And, he, and Jacob sees his brother acting in such a manner and he's probably disgusted by the carnality, the irresponsibility of his brother. And Jacob replies by asking him to sell him his birthright. In verse 31, which we know well, it says, And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. Now Jacob here receives a lot of stick, doesn't he? You read the commentators and a lot of them give him a, lot, a hard time for this, a hard time for what he does here. One commentator wrote this, he was acting like a scoundrel or a rascal in taking advantage of his brother. That's what they say. He's acting like a scoundrel or a rascal. He's taking advantage here of his brother in his hour of need. But let's stop and really consider this passage for a moment. And when you do, that seems utterly ridiculous. His brother is hungry. Not dying, his brother is hungry. His brother simply wants the food that he can smell and he wants it now at any cost. And in his carnality, he is willing to give up anything to have that food. Hence, Jacob makes this offer. Now, it seems clear that Jacob, he knew 
that Esau didn't have any uh, regard for the birthright. Jacob knew that Esau didn't care about the birthright. He placed no value on the birthright. It's for that reason that he makes this offer under him. You know, Jacob, on the other hand, he did value the birthright. He valued it highly. He knew that it was a spiritual blessing and he knew that God had declared that it should be his. And he sees here an opportunity to make God's purposes come to pass. He tries to anticipate the providence of God. He sees an an opening, an opportunity, and he takes it. Now, that's not to excuse Jacob's part in all this. Okay, I'm not trying to excuse Jacob. Jacob sinned, yes. But his sin here was not greed. His sin here was not blackmail. His sin here was a lack of faith in God, wasn't it? A lack of faith in the Lord. Like we've seen before in the life of Abraham, Jacob here lacked patience to wait for God to give him the birthright. That's his sin here. He fails to wait upon the Lord. The commentator Barnes writes this, He availed himself of a weak moment to accomplish by consent what was to come. Yet he lays no necessity on Esau, but leaves him to his own free choice. We must therefore beware of blaming him for endeavoring to win his brother's concurrence in a thing that was already settled in the purpose of God. His chief error lay in attempting to anticipate the arrangements of providence. That's his error here. That's his error, not waiting for God to bring it to pass. You notice in this story here, in this passage, that Jacob is not condemned. Jacob is not the one who's condemned in the word of God, rather it's Esau. At the end of verse 34, it says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of God condemns Esau. Esau is the one condemned because Esau here despises his birthrights. You see, Jacob doesn't trick his brother here. He doesn't trick his brother into giving up something so valuable. Esau freely gives it up because he doesn't place any value in it. He doesn't care about it. He freely gives it up for a simple meal because of the carnality of his heart. We see that in verse 32. Verse 32, it says, And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? Esau here places no value at all on the birthright. That phrase there where it says, I am at the point to die. That phrase doesn't mean that he was about to die then and then if he didn't get food. That's not what it's saying. Rather, he's acknowledging here that he's going to die one day, and it could be any time soon, so what's the profit of holding on to the birthright? That's what he's saying here. He's saying to Jacob, I'm going to die one day anyway, so what's the point of this birthright? What value is this birthright to me right now? You see, to him it was worthless for the here and now. It was a spiritual blessing. And he's thinking, oh, don't care about that. I want something now. And that's all he's living for. You see, Esau's attitude really was, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That's his attitude here. 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. He has no concern at all for the spiritual. And this is in stark contrast to Jacob. Because Jacob places great value on the birthright. He, he wants it, this spiritual blessing. And when he hears his brother's response, Jacob makes him swear before God that the birthright now belongs to him. Look in verse 33. It says, And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Jacob makes him swear before God that he will give him this birthright, that he will sell it to him. Commentator Morris writes this, He therefore asked Esau to bind his agreement with a formal oath, which he readily agreed to do. Even if Isaac now gave the birthright to Esau, he would never interfere with a contract between the brothers sealed in this way. The birthright now would go to Jacob as God had instructed his parents in the first place. And so he makes this oath. Esau makes this oath. He, he promises, he seals the deal. And then what do we see Esau do? He sits down, he eats the stew, and he doesn't give any more thought to his birthright. Look in verse 34. It says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau truly was a carnal man. He was a carnal man. He placed no value at all in that which was spiritual. He's only concerned with the physical, the here and now. What could benefit him now? What could bring him pleasure, enjoyment now? Jacob, on the other hand, was spiritually minded. Yes, he should have waited upon the Lord. That's, that's clear. He should have waited upon the Lord and he sinned. But we see clearly that he did place value on the spiritual blessings. And the value, <clears throat> the value he placed on the covenant promises of God, he valued them. He wanted these promises. He wanted to experience these blessings in his life. And so he sought after them. He desired to obtain them. And in this, we see why God chose him. This is why God chose Jacob over Esau. Even with all of his failures, and Jacob does fail the Lord, but even with all his failures, the reason God chose him is because of this hard attitude, because he desired the spiritual. And the question tonight really for us is, what do we value? That really is the implication of this whole passage. What do we value? What are we seeking after? You know, Romans 8 verse 6 it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And that's the question. Are we carnally minded or are we spiritually minded? You know, are we someone like Esau, only concerned with the here and now, with the pleasures of life, seeking after these things, the carnal pleasures? Because if we're like Esau, then we're useless to God. We're not someone who can use our hearts in the wrong place. Or are we like Jacob, someone who God can use to his glory because we're spiritually minded? We want the spiritual. We're going to make mistakes, but our heart's in the right place. We want the spiritual. We desire those things. That's the man that God can use, and that's why God uses Jacob here over Esau. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, tonight we've seen the difference between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, one who was spiritually minded and one who was carnal minded. 
Lord, may you help us to be spiritually minded. May you help us to place great value on the things of the Lord, on those things which please you, which honor you, on serving you, Lord. May those things have priority in our lives. May we be someone you can use, someone who uh, you can empower and use to your glory. And bless now as we close this night in Jesus' name. Amen.